0: Section 8 of the Watergate Report, Volume 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Dennison, Portland, Maine Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 1 Section M, Activities Relating to Other Investigations and Court Proceedings. White House and CRP officials were also concerned that other investigations besides the grand jury proceeding might uncover the true facts relating to the Watergate break-in. Subsection 1, The Patman Hearings. On August 19, 1972, Representative Wright Patman, chairman of the House Banking and Currency Committee, ordered his committee staff to investigate the president's campaign finances, including the checks deposited in Barker's account. By early September, White House concern over the Patman Committee's investigation had mounted. Dean testified that from the beginning of this probe, the White House had two major fears. First, the hearings would have resulted in more adverse pre-election publicity regarding Watergate, and, second, they just might stumble into something that would start unraveling the cover-up, According to Dean, CRP counsel Parkinson was put in touch with Congressman Gary Brown, a committee member, to persuade Brown to help limit the scope of the committee's hearings. On September 8, Brown sent a letter to Attorney General Kleindienst, which, according to Dean, Parkinson had drafted. The letter inquired as to the propriety of Stan's testimony before the committee, scheduled for September 14, in view of pending civil and criminal suits. Congressman Brown has filed a sworn statement with the committee, denying that Parkinson drafted this letter, and Dean's statement, admittedly based on hearsay, has not been corroborated. The committee has found no evidence that Congressman Brown committed any improprieties. The Justice Department, according to Dean, declined at this time such a suggestion to recommend that Stans not be required to testify, being of the view such a suggestion would appear part of a concerted effort to block the hearings. Nonetheless, Parkinson informed the committee that Stans would not appear in order to avoid prejudicing Pending Criminal Investigations In the last week of September, Dean took an active role in White House efforts to hinder the work of the Patman investigation. After Patman announced on September 25 that he would hold a vote on October 3 on issuing subpoenas to witnesses, Haldeman suggested that Dean talk to John Connolly about blocking the committee's hearings. Connolly, Dean said, responded that Patman's only, quote, soft spot, unquote, was a rumor that he had not reported large contributions from lobbyists. Dean then asked Parkinson to investigate the reports filed by members of the committee with the Clerk of the House concerning campaign contributions. Parkinson furnished such a report on September 26, which Dean said he did not use. Dean next persuaded Henry Peterson, chief of the Criminal Division of the Department of Justice, to write committee members to dissuade them from issuing subpoenas. Peterson, in an October 2 letter to the members, asked that they delay their investigation because it might jeopardize fair criminal trials. On October 3, the committee voted not to hold hearings. However, on October 10, Patman announced that his committee would convene in two days in another attempt to investigate the Watergate affair. Patman requested Dean, Mitchell, McGregor, and Stans to appear. Dean declined to appear, claiming executive privilege. The others declined on advice of counsel, and Patman did not reconvene the committee. Subsection 2. The Civil Suits A counteroffensive was likewise mounted regarding the civil suits brought by the Democratic National Committee against CRP Dean testified that around September 9 or 10, both Haldeman and Colson relayed to him a request from the president that a counteraction be filed against the Democrats, quote, as quickly as humanly possible, unquote. On September 13, CRP filed a $2,500,000 countersuit against the DNC for abuse of process, and on September 14, Stans brought a $5,000,000 libel suit against Lawrence O'Brien, DNC chairman. Dean testified that when he met with the President on September 15, the various civil cases were discussed. Dean stated he told the President that CRP lawyers were handling both the DNC suit and one filed by common cause. He said Judge Ritchie had been helpful in slowing down these civil cases. The President was informed as to the status of the CRP abuse of process suit and the Stan's libel action. Haldeman's testimony and the edited transcripts support Dean's testimony in this regard. The edited transcripts at page 60 contain the following exchange. Dean You might be interested in some of the allocations we got. The Stan's libel action was assigned to Judge Ritchie. expletive deleted dean well now that is good and bad judge ritchie is not known to be one of the inaudible on the bench that is considered by me he is fairly candid in dealing with people about the question he has made several entrees off the bench one to kleindinst and one to romer mcfee to keep romer abreast of what his thinking is he told romer he thought murray ought to file a libel action President. Did he? Haldeman. Can he deal with this concurrently with the court case? Dean. Yeah. The fact that the civil case drew to a halt, that the depositions were halted, he is freed. Haldeman. It was just off for a few days, wasn't it? Dean. It did more than that. He had been talking to Silbert, one of the assistant U.S. attorneys down here. Silbert said, We are going to have a hell of a time drawing these indictments because these civil depositions will be coming out and the grand jury has won out on this civil case, but it is nothing typical. Subsection 3 CIA Investigative Materials According to Dean, shortly after the Select Committee was created, Ehrlichman urged him to have the CIA retrieve from the Department of Justice certain photographs which came from a CIA camera supplied Hunt that Hunt had returned to the agency. The pictures included one of Liddy, posed in front of Dr. Fielding's office, which was burglarized. Dean said Ehrlichman wanted the photographs and accompanying documents retrieved, quote, before the Senate investigators got a copy of the material, unquote. Dean further testified he sought to obtain the photographs from Henry Peterson, claiming they had nothing to do with Watergate. Peterson told Dean that the Justice Department had received a letter from Senator Mansfield asking preservation of all evidentiary materials that might have any relationship to Watergate. Peterson stated he would be willing to return the materials to the CIA if it requested such action and leave a card in the department's file indicating what he had done. Subsequently, General Walters of the CIA visited Dean to state that he was opposed to retrieving the material under those circumstances, and the idea was dropped. Subsection 4 Other Activities Relating to the Select Committee Evidence received by the Select Committee demonstrates considerable concern on the part of certain White House officials as to how to deal with the Select Committee, which, Dean said, was viewed as an uncontrollable, if not hostile, body that presented new and possibly more dangerous problems than the criminal trials. Item A. The La Costa Meeting A major meeting of White House officials to develop strategy regarding the select committee took place at the La Costa Resort Hotel, south of San Clemente, on February 10 and 11, 1973. Attending the meeting were Haldeman Ehrlichman, Dean and Richard Moore. Dean stated that the meeting at La Costa was wide-ranging, involving an evaluation of select committee members and the White House strategy for dealing with the committee. According to Dean, the basic strategy was, The White House will take a public posture of full cooperation, but privately will attempt to restrain the investigation and make it as difficult as possible to get information and witnesses. A behind-the-scenes media effort would be made to make the Senate inquiry appear very partisan. The ultimate goal would be to discredit the hearings and reduce their impact by attempting to show that the Democrats have engaged in the same type of activities. Dean said a special program was planned to handle press coverage of the Senate hearings. Haldeman, he said, suggested that Pat Buchanan be used as a press watchdog. Buchanan would prepare speeches on biased press coverage, write op-ed articles, attend the hearings, and be the White House spokesman to take pressure off Ronald Zeigler in his daily briefings. Moore and Haldeman, however, recollect that it was Dean who suggested this role for Buchanan. Special plans were made as to CRP activities regarding the hearings. It was decided that CRP would increase its legal and public relations staff and that Paul O'Brien and Ken Parkinson would be responsible for handling CRP witnesses called to testify. Ehrlichman testified it was generally concluded that CRP, with Mitchell returning as its head, would operationally be the best entity to deal with the select committee hearings. Dean said that toward the end of the meeting on February 11th, Ehrlichman raised the, quote, bottom-line, question. Quote, would the seven Watergate defendants remain silent through the Senate hearings? Unquote. This was important, Dean said, since their entire strategy rested on the continued silence of the Watergate defendants. Dean told Haldeman and Ehrlichman there were still demands for more money. Richard Moore, Dean said, was therefore assigned to go to New York to see Mitchell, quote, simply to lay it out that it was Mitchell's responsibility to raise the necessary funds for these men, more Moore confirmed this testimony. Dean, in a sort of by-the-way reference, said he had been told by the lawyers, and I think that was the way he put it, but I cannot be precise about his language, that they may be needing some more money, and did we have any ideas? Someone said, isn't that something that John Mitchell might handle with his rich New York friends? It was suggested that since I would be meeting with Mr. Mitchell, I should mention this when I saw him, and I said I would. Ehrlichman also confirms that Moore was sent to New York to see Mitchell about raising money for the Watergate defendants whose sentences were pending. When Moore broached the issue with Mitchell, Mitchell said, according to Moore, Get lost, unquote, or Tell them to get lost. Unquote. Mitchell confirms that he declined Moore's fundraising suggestion. He testified that the, quote, general tenor of the subject matter was that the money was for the payment for the support and the legal fees of the people that were involved in the Watergate, unquote. Moore, Ehrlichman, and Haldeman provided further confirmation and elaboration of Dean's testimony concerning the La Costa discussion. Moore testified that at this meeting, the participants discussed preparation for the select committee hearings, executive privilege, a possible White House statement on Watergate in advance of the hearings, manpower for CRP to cope with the hearings, and the pending lawsuits. Ehrlichman testified that the La Costa meeting was called quote, because the President had asked who was handling the preparation of the White House case for the Senate select committee hearings and what planning was being done and what was the White House position going to be on matters like executive privilege, and there were no answers to those questions. Ehrlichman admitted that the La Costa group discussed steps to affect the select committee's resolution and also evaluated members of the committee. He also confirmed that a strategy to block or delay the hearings was discussed, including a proposal to seek judicial delay. Haldeman basically concurred in Moore's recollections of the La Costa meeting. The interest of the White House in affecting the outcome of the select committee's hearings is further demonstrated by numerous passages in the edited presidential transcripts, where the President, Ehrlichman, Haldeman, and Dean discussed various ways to deal with the upcoming hearings to limit the select committee's effectiveness and to, quote, cut the losses, unquote, of the White House. The Meeting of February 28, 1973 Between the President and Dean at pages 55 to 76, which is subsequently discussed. Part B. Documentary and Other Evidence Indicating the White House Strategy In support of his testimony concerning White House preparations for the hearings, Dean submitted to the committee of February 9, 1973, quote, eyes only, unquote, memorandum from Haldeman to Dean, emphasizing the need for a minority counsel to the Irvin Committee, who was a, quote, real tiger, not an old man or a soft head, unquote. Also, Haldeman indicated therein that Dean would instruct Kleindienst to order the FBI to prepare a file on the, 1968 bugging, unquote, of candidate Richard Nixon in preparation for a counteroffensive. Alderman, under questioning, authenticated this memorandum. Another memorandum supplied by Dean was from Lawrence Higby, Alderman's assistant, to Dean, dated February 10, 1973. This document emphasized the need, quote, to get a thorough itemization as quickly as possible of all the disruptions that occurred in the campaign for our Watergate tactics with the Irvin Committee, unquote. A demonstration of the strong counteroffensive Haldeman was planning is found in a memorandum from Haldeman to Dean dated February 10, 1973. We need to get our people to put out the story on the foreign or communist money that was used in support of demonstrations against the President in 1972. We should tie all 1972 demonstrations to McGovern, and thus to the Democrats as part of the peace movement. The investigation should be brought to include the peace movement, which leads directly to McGovern and Teddy Kennedy. This is a good counteroffensive to be developed. We need to develop the plan on to what extent the Democrats were responsible for the demonstrations that led to violence or disruption. There is also the question of whether we should let out the Fort Wayne story now that we ran a clean campaign compared to theirs, of libel and slander, such as against Rebozo, etc. We could let Evans and Novak put it out and then be asked about it to make the point that we knew and the President said it was not to be used under any circumstances. In any event, we have to play a very hard game on this whole thing and get our investigations going as a counter-move. Haldeman accepted responsibility for the contents of this memorandum. Dean testified the White House feared the Senate hearing might force the Justice Department into further criminal investigations that would lead back to the White House. It was important, Dean said, that the President meet with Kleindienst and, quote, bring him back in the family to protect the White House, unquote. Dean indicated he felt the President should "...solicit Kleindienst's assistance during the hearings, and, if anything, should develop during the hearings, to not let all hell break loose in a subsequent investigation." The proposed meeting between the President and Kleindienst was to be a "...stroking session." In a February 22, 1973 talking paper, which Dean submitted to Haldeman for transmittal to the President, The following recommendations were made respecting this proposed meeting. Clientents should be asked to remain in office until at least one full year from this date, i.e., until after the Watergate hearings have passed, because the hearings may well result in a request for additional action by the Department of Justice. We can't afford bitterness at Justice, nor can we risk a new Attorney General being able to handle some of the potential problems. Kleindienst should be asked to follow the hearings closely and keep us appraised of any potential problems from a Department of Justice standpoint. Kleindienst should be given the feeling that he is an important member of the team, and it is not merely because of these hearings that he is being asked to stay on. Kleindienst confirmed that he met with President Nixon in late February and that the President requested him to stay at his post until the investigation was over. Several days later, on February 28th, the President personally expressed to Dean his concern over the upcoming select committee hearings. The President stated his hope that the committee would have one quote, big slam-bang thing for a whole week, unquote, after which quote, interest in the whole thing will fall off. Unquote. Dean warned the President that, I think this is going to be very different. It will be hot. I think they are going to be tough. I think they are going to be gory in some regards. But I am also convinced that if everyone pulls their own oar in this thing, and all those we've got with various concerns, we can make it through these things, and minimal people will be hurt. And they may even paint themselves as being such partisans. The President said he hoped the committee would, be partisan rather than for them to have a facade of fairness and all the rest. The February 28 meeting concluded with President Nixon telling Dean that he expected Mitchell "...won't allow himself to be ruined by Watergate. He will put on his big stone face before the committee, but I hope he does and he will." Dean expressed concern that the select committee was out to get him, a notion the President discounted. The President, however, did indicate a belief that the select committee was quote, after unquote, Haldeman, Colson, or Ehrlichman. Subsection 5. Henry Peterson's Communications to the President. The edited transcripts of presidential conversations show that Henry Peterson, chief of the Justice Department's criminal division, served as a conduit for a constant flow of information from the grand jury and the prosecutors first to dean and then to the president the transcripts also demonstrate that the president kept haldeman and ehrlichman informed of what he learned from peterson peterson's conduct raises a serious question as to whether high department of justice officials can effectively administer criminal justice where white house personnel or the president himself are the subjects of the investigation The conflict of interest is apparent, and a committee recommendation deals directly with this issue. Early in the Watergate investigation, in 1972, Peterson had kept Dean informed. Dean told the President during their morning March 21 meeting that Peterson had made him totally aware of relevant information with respect to the prosecutorial effort. There is no doubt that I was totally aware of what the Bureau, FBI, was doing at all times. I was totally aware of what the grand jury was doing. I knew what witnesses were going to be called. I knew what they were asked, and I had to. The President asked Dean, Why did Peterson play the game so straight with us? Dean replied, Because Peterson is a soldier. He kept me informed. He told me when we had problems, where we had problems, and the like. He believed in you, and he believes in this administration. This administration made him. I don't think he had done anything improper, but he did make sure that the investigation was narrowed down to the very, very fine criminal thing which was a break for us. There is no doubt about it. Dean assured the President during this meeting that Peterson is, quote, the only man I know that really could tell us how this could be put together so that it did the maximum to carve it away with a minimum of damage to individuals involved, unquote. Later, in April 1972, Peterson and the President met on several occasions to discuss the progress of the Watergate investigation. At one session, Peterson assured the President that the investigation, would not reach him, because the Department of Justice had no jurisdiction to investigate the President. I've said to U.S. Attorney Harold H. Titus, quote, We have to draw the line. We have no mandate to investigate the President. We investigate Watergate, unquote. He continued, My understanding of law is, my understanding of our responsibilities, is that if it came to that, I would have to come to you and say, we can't do that. The only people who have jurisdiction to do that is the House of Representatives, as far as I'm concerned. Peterson, however, at an April 17 meeting told the President that, Mr. President, if I thought you were trying to protect somebody, I would have walked out. Peterson's role as a conduit of secret grand jury information is illustrated by his telephone conversation of April 16, 1973, with the President from 8.58 p.m. to 9.14 p.m. The conversation began. President, I just want to know if there are any developments I should know about, and, second, that, of course, as you know, anything you tell me, as I think I told you earlier, will not be passed on. Henry Peterson, I understand, Mr. President. President, because I know the rules of the grand jury. Peterson then began to relate to the President secret information before the grand jury. He relayed to the President the factual details of the investigation, even indicating where there were gaps. Thus, he told the President that Dean, quote, got in touch with Kalmbach to arrange for money, the details of which we really don't know as yet. The next morning, April 17, from 9.47 to 9.59 a.m., the President met with Haldeman and discussed strategy for dealing with the Watergate affair. In the course of that conversation, the President, who had been informed that the Justice Department did not know the details of Kalmbach's arrangement for money, said to Haldeman, Another thing. If you could get John Ehrlichman and yourself to sit down and do some hard thinking about what kind of strategy you're going to have with the money, you know what I mean. The President also told Haldeman, well, be sure that Kalmbach is at least aware of this, that Larue has talked very freely. He is a broken man. Peterson had informed the President on April 16, 1973, that Dean had said that Liddy, quote, confessed to Dean, unquote, on June 19, 1972, and that Dean then told Ehrlichman what Liddy had said. The next morning, the President told Alderman. Dean met with Liddy on June 19th. Must have been when he did it. He was in California in January, but that's irrelevant. But they keep banging around and banging around. The prosecution gets out the damn stuff. Did John talk with you about it? Haldeman. Yeah, he mentioned it. Dean did tell us that story in Ehrlichman's office last week or two weeks ago. President. But not to go all through this. Haldeman. I don't think so. The transcript of the President Peterson meeting of April 17 provides another example of Peterson's briefing the President on information received by the prosecutors and grand jury. This conversation also shows that Peterson was giving the President tactical advice as to the posture the White House should strike during the investigation. During this conversation, the President told Peterson not to tell him, quote, anything out of the grand jury unless you think I need to know it. If it corroborates something or anybody here, I need to know it. Otherwise, I don't want to know about it." The President then asked, "...I guess it would be legal for me to know." And Peterson responded, "...well, yes, I think it is legal for you to know." Peterson subsequently left this meeting. Haldeman and Ehrlichman appeared, and the President proceeded then to relay to them the information obtained from Peterson. At least by April 27, Peterson's constant contact with the White House created suspicions among the Department of Justice Watergate investigators. Peterson admitted to the President on April 27, We had a kind of crisis of confidence night before last, and in effect it concerned me whether or not they were at ease with my reporting to you, and I pointed out to them that I had very specific instructions, Discuss that with them before on that subject. As a consequence, I kind of laid into Harold Titus yesterday, and it cleared the air a little bit, but there is a very suspicious atmosphere. They are concerned and scared. End of Section 8